welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. So welcome to Ivy League Murders, everybody. That's right. We have a good show for you today. So in the early morning hours of March 12th, 2019, the FBI raided some of the most exclusive homes in Los Angeles and Newport Beach. Their roundup included actress Felicity Hoffman, socialites, and the eventual arrest of Lori Laughlin and Devin Sloan, a corporate superstar. In Boston, federal prosecutors charged 50 people with conspiracy mail fraud. Thus, the college scandal unfolded. The linchpin of this criminal enterprise was a man named Rick Singer. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Jennifer Levitz and Melissa Korn, co-authors of the book, Unacceptable. And we wanted to welcome you both and uh, introduce you as both reporters for the Wall Street Journal, but we wanted to ask if you'd each tell us a little bit about your background. I know, Melissa, you're an Ivy Leaguer. <laughs> Thanks for having us. I went to Cornell undergrad and then on to Columbia for journalism school. And then I started at Dow Jones Newswires in 2007. And then from there, moved over to the Wall Street Journal side of the company uh, around 2011. And I've been covering higher ed for six and a half years now. Wow. Okay. Wow. Interesting. And how about you, Jennifer? Yes, and thank you very much for having us. I am a Maryland native, and I graduated from Loyola University in Baltimore. And I got my journalism start at little tiny papers out in California. And then I went to the Providence Journal in Rhode Island, where I spent about six years. And then I came to the Wall Street Journal in 2007 and have been here since and covered everything from mutual funds to transportation. And now I'm a national U.S. news reporter. So it can be hurricanes one week, school shooting the next. So a little bit of everything. And you're based in Boston. Is that right, Jennifer? I am. Yes. So you're you're near us. And enjoying the wonderful winter weather here, (laughs) just like we are. I know. So I have to just start by saying, wow. When this initially happened, I thought, you know what? This isn't shocking to me. I actually knew somebody when I was working in high school who went to Harvard, who took the SATs from people. But what the shocking part to me here is the role reversal, where it's the parents who are doing the cheating. And I have to say, I mean, we're going to ask you about it. It really was shocking to me, the brazenness that occurred. But maybe we could kind of start off. We talk about the mastermind, Rick Singer, and maybe you could start off telling us a little bit about him. For people who don't haven't read the book yet, because we know everybody's going to want to. Maybe we could start there, Melissa. 
I can definitely do that. Jennifer went in deeper than I did in terms of reporting on Rick's background and mm-hmm. childhood. So I'm going to pass it over to her to oh, okay. share this part of the story. Great. So Rick Singer, as you mentioned, was the mastermind of this. And before this day, you wouldn't have known his name for any reason other than that he was a college counselor. He lived in Newport Beach. I mean, plenty of people hire college counselors. And he was very, very good at his job by all accounts. He had a whole legitimate arm his business. And he was just sought after. People passed his name around, he got results. But he had this whole illegal side to his business that grew over the years that kind of pat underground, like, hey, this is the guy and he can do this and this. So how did he come to this? First of all, the interesting thing about Rick Singer is that, you know, he could have gotten wealthy doing just legitimate work, but it wasn't because he wanted to be, seem to be rich and take all kinds of trips. And I mean, he had a big house, but He was just driven by this deep need to win. It is so competitive. He is just, it's the first thing if you ask anyone about him, they're like, this guy, if you were just playing a game of cards, if you were playing a game of pickup, he's throwing elbows. He just had to win. But it goes back to his childhood. He grew up outside Chicago in a fairly affluent community, but he himself was not. He was like lower middle class. His parents were divorced at a time when a lot of kids' parents weren't. A lot of kids went away. The class was a big issue. Some people went away to summer camp. The kids with less money sort of didn't. He had like a chip on his shoulder. He was very well liked. He was very heavy. People joked and called him like fat man singer, which he didn't like. So a friend of his remembers that he just decided, like, I'm not going to be fat man singer anymore. He decided to transform himself and he put on a big like wrestling suit where you sweat. He just ran laps in the hot sun and hardly ate anything all summer. He lost weight and he did transform himself. He became a good athlete. He was larger than life. So he used his personality. I think something clicked in him. Like I can be what I decide I'm going to be. And part of that was like a really motivating message to people around him. You know, he had this confidence, but he had a trait that people noticed very early on, which was he just fabricated. He, everyone, he'd play in a sports game. He'd say he got a home run when he only got a double. It was kind of harmless at first, but that that is Rick Singer. And he just carried that right on through. And he went to college. He graduated from Trinity University. He bounced around. He had a kind of hard scrabble path himself, like state school, then community college. But he eventually graduated. He was like mid-20s by the time he gets out of college, older than everybody else. And he starts off as just a junior college basketball coach. But then in the mid-90s, he decides to become a college counselor in Sacramento. And the combination of what he learned, who can get into as a coach, and his confidence and his just bravado was magnetic to anxious parents. Right. He was offering a way into some of these schools that seemed so hard to get into. And he kind of made it seem like a sure thing. He provided confidence. I got this. I can help you at a time when parents really were becoming more and more insecure about their kids' chance of getting into college. So that was really appealing, right? Somebody who was driven, focused on goals, and said he could deliver and had track record of delivering. So this created kind of this like back channel of people, the very wealthy knowing about this name, Rick Singer, as like the go-to guy if you wanted to get your kid into one of these schools. I'm just going to say like he had a large legitimate counseling business, right? So he was working with middle and upper middle class families and kind of rose through the ranks to wealthier and wealthier clientele. 
And it's such a word of mouth business. So the name was passed around in these circles. And when he moved to Southern California, it continued to be passed around in even more rarefied circles, if you will. And he did help students get into all sorts of different schools, but kind of he had that off-menu offerings, services, if you will, that families did start to reach out to him because of that. And also some who were using him for more legitimate services kind of tiptoed over the line to the more illicit stuff. In the book, you guys say it so well, it was sort of, it's brought up that it's sort of through the side door. That's sort of how he would term it to these parents. One thing about Singer too is, and you guys pointed out in the book, he was a master networker as well. So let's discuss this side door. What would the side door look like? What what are a couple of examples of that? <laughs> well, we'll start with what the front door is, right? The front door is getting into college just based on merit. Good grades, extracurriculars, all that. You apply, you get in. Back door is what Singer called the way that people would get in if they made very large donations to a university. So we're talking multiple millions of dollars. They have connections, they're on some VIP list, things like that. And then the side door was what Singer referred to when he was describing his athletics scheme, where he described it kind of innocently as you make a donation, a smaller donation to a smaller department, say the music department or an athletics program, and that smaller dollar amount goes further in that smaller environment rather than just a big donation to the whole university. What it was in reality was him bribing coaches and others to slot students in as recruited athletes, even if they didn't play the sport. They would put together this fake athletic profile, including photoshopping somebody's face onto the body of another actual athlete. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. Talk about brazen. Yeah. And some yeah. of the pictures are so funny, too. The one girl who used a picture just of another person. Yes. The water polo player. I mean, it's just like another person. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. A couple of yeah. those. And, you know, nobody ever thought that a coach would put forward as a recruit somebody who wasn't going to help the team. So it just nobody thought to challenge this ever. So they were able to slot these kids in, flag them as recruits. Athletic recruits have perhaps the best shot of anybody of getting into these super selective colleges. So it was as close to a guarantee as you could offer. And I think that kind of brings up something that really kind of shocked me. I mean, I guess it's funny because I have a daughter who's going through this process now, but it's amazed me how much of the college selection process has been based on trust. It's like the honor system for college. That really amazed me with little or no vetting. Basically. Yeah, or oversight yeah. that this wasn't, you're reading this going, well, how is this not picked up? Yeah. And you cite a lot of examples in the book where it's almost caught, but it's not. And I'm wondering what you think of the system and how it allowed this to kind of happen. It is so based on trust, and it has been for a very long time, right? The an applicant is expected to do their own work, write their own essay, even though we know quite often other people weigh in on that essay, edit it, write parts of it for somebody. And when you submit your application to a college, either through the Common App or otherwise, you generally have to sign off or at least put an electric signature, electronic signature saying, this is my work and I confirm that all of this is true. But there's no fact checking, right? There's no real audits of the applications. The admissions officers don't have the time or resources to call up a principal and say, hey, this kid was the president of the physics club, not the vice president, right? Or ask a 
right. you know, nursing home. Okay, this kid says they volunteered her 20 hours a week. Is that true? They just can't do it. They just have to trust. I mean, you point out so beautifully in the book, and I think this is where Singer's personality and his sort of very distant relationship to the truth comes in, where one kid like volunteered one day for like Habitat for Humanity. And in his college essay, it's like you would think he had built like 50 homes for (laughs) the impoverished. You know what I mean? Like that was typical Singer. Well, I wanted, though, to, because I do think it speaks to a lot of parents' insecurities about their children applying to colleges. Obviously, you had some pretty good fodder for this to happen, you know, because of the algorithm for getting a child into college, it's a mystery. And what you had with Singer is him approaching parents and saying, hey, look, I can get him in. I can guarantee this. What interests me is that parents kind of in a good faith kind of way, they were trying to do the best for their kids oftentimes. And you can see the temptation to do it. However, I don't know where I'm going with this. I just wanted to bring up the parental part of it. Sarah, I think having a child that age, I I mean, I think that we all ask ourselves, would I do this? And it's an interesting question. So this is going on and he has this business and nobody's questioning it. It's shocking to me in the book how they talk about it quite openly. That's not stealth at all. I've listened to in other places, the transcripts. It's very surprising. You would think they would be a little quieter about it. And then can we talk about how this whole thing kind of unfolds and how it's discovered? Because I found it surprising that most of these type of cheating scandals in the past have really been discovered by mistake, as you point out, not by any type of internal audit. Exactly. This whole thing was discovered by accident. I mean, this went on for years. And you think, like, how could it just go on and nobody find out? I think one thing is, like, there's no incentive for anybody to say, hey, go to a cocktail party and say, I bribe my kid's way into school. Like, people really try to keep this hush-hush. Of course, it almost slipped different times. But what finally happened is just completely random. The SEC, Securities Exchange in Boston, got a tip about a stock fraud case from some pissed off investors who were like, somebody scammed us. And they passed it over to the U.S. Attorney's Office and they started to look into it. And it was like people trying to get people to invest in bogus companies. And and it looked pretty big, pretty sprawling. And it looked like one of the big players was out in L.A. So they go and they raid this guy's house. And this is a man named Maury Tobin. He lives in this like French Chateau style mansion in Hancock Park with like 12 chimneys on it. And he's got several beautiful daughters that go to the Marlboro School, which is a great school. And they're kind of one after another go off to Ivy League schools. He's sort of a, nobody can quite figure out what he does for a living, but he's just really wealthy. He dabbles in this, dabbles in that. He swims at the local pool every day, but he's kind of idolized a little bit because he just seems to have a charmed life. Like this guy, just everything seems to be working out here. Well, he is central in this financial scam. So like many, many people, when they're fingered in a, a white collar crime, they quickly decide to become a rat and tell on others to lessen their load. So he goes back to Boston and he's going to help them out. But they've got to, the government's going to use you in that way. They've got to know everything you've got, every skeleton in your closet, so that the defense doesn't turn around and discredit your witness. So they've got his financial statements, and they're seeing like money going from him to Connecticut. And, you know, they're like, what's this about? And he just comes clean and says he's been bribing the women's soccer coach at Yale. Um, <laughs> 
you can imagine if you're a prosecutor, you're like, uh, ding, ding, that's way more. Yeah. Get some people from down the hallway. I think bribery. Way more sexy. And of course, but you want to play it cool and not pretend you think it's that interesting. So the person keeps talking. You're like, oh, okay. And then the prosecutor runs down the hall to his boss. I think we got something here. So Mari Tobin agreed to kind of get the Yale soccer coach, Rudy Meredith, for the feds and catch him in the act of discussing this bribe. They hadn't yet finalized how much he was going to pay. So they met at this hotel in Boston. Uh, and long wharf. Long I know. I'll never, I'll never look at it the same. No, it's also where the Biogen conference that yes. had to spread COVID around. Yeah, the Yelp reviews are not probably so great. No. Um, so they met in a hotel room, kind of finalizing some details. Mari Tobin handed over some cash. And Rudy Meredith, the Yale coach, mentioned Rick Singer's name. And at that point, nobody had heard Singer's name in this context before. You know, we don't totally know why Meredith mentioned it. He was a little disorganized sometimes, and he might have said, you know, something along the lines of, now remember, did you connect me through Rick Singer, or was this a bribery kind of that we're doing on our own? I don't, remind me. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. part of the menu are He's we doing yesterday? So all of a sudden, the prosecutors, the FBI listening in on the, on the meeting, Rick Singer, we should look into him. And from there, they ended up flipping Rudy Meredith, had Meredith make phone calls to Rick Singer to get wired conversations from Rick Singer. And after a number of months of having a wire up on Rick Singer, they then told him, you know, we've got you. They brought him actually back to that same hotel for another meeting. And he uh, agreed to cooperate and followed a script that prosecutors had given him to kind of continue talking to some clients and to finalize a few more deals and go back to old clients to get them on recorded lines saying, oh yeah, I totally remember that bribery thing we did where I claimed to do this and actually did that and wrote you a check for your charity to cover it. That brings me to another point, guys, is that I think most of the public, they really knew about Felicity Huffman. They really knew about Lori Laughlin, but you're talking about 50 people, yeah. right? Who were yeah. More than 50 nationwide. Yeah. This was big. This involved parents and coaches and fraudulently taken SATs. Talk a little bit about the scope of the investigation and who some of these players were. I mean, I'll just say one of the most fascinating things to me about this whole case is how sprawling and complicated it was, right? This, yeah. this scheme wasn't like one person going in and taking an SAT for somebody or one college counselor suggesting some unsavory methods of getting in. It was Rick Singer. It was his office staff. It was his test taker, it, you know, Proctor. He had more than one, actually. Um, only one was charged. He had test site administrators that he was paying off. He had coaches. He allegedly worked with an administrator at one of the schools. And there were about three dozen parents charged initially, and then other parents charged later on as the case continued to unfold. So some parents agreed to cooperate with prosecutors and potentially gave additional names or in the course of just continuing to investigate, they found some other parents. One parent even came forward himself and was like, guys, I did this. I'm sorry. <laughs> yep. oh, yeah. He managed to work his way into some particular communities. L.A., of course, that was big. And like the West Side L.A. And then Orange County, he had quite a few people. And then the other one was Northern California. 
So you had a lot of parents who kind of knew of each other, had gotten his name from someone else. So that happened a lot in, in the case too. And then you had some people who were in the same field. So like a big developer in California had gotten the name from a big developer. And right. then you had like a couple New York City, Greenwich, Connecticut type people. But it was kind of concentrated in little pockets. Yeah, we at various points had, while reporting this out uh, for the journal and for the book, we had a big whiteboard that looked very conspiracy theory. Here's the name and here's a line drawing to them. And okay, those kids were all at this high school. And that means this parent may have known this parent. Was that the connection? And okay, these people all worked with or had ties to Kimco. These people all used this financial advisor. And we started to see just this web that was so complicated. I hope you took screenshots of those whiteboards. (laughs) I I just have to say, and it sounds kind of snotty, but... I mean, USC, what is that? I don't get it. I would, I would want an Ivy. If you have half a million dollars, I want like an Ivy. I don't, I don't get this fascination with that. That is the East Coast bias coming out. Um, I know. I know it's the East Coast bias. I'm supposed to be the Harvard snob. I know. You know I, I went idea. to University of Miami, so I didn't go to an Ivy. But if I was going to, the whole time I'm, I'm going, USC? I, and I have friends on the West Coast, but it, it is that is our kind of East Coast educational snobbery. Even in California, if you go back, you know, USC, so of people who are older sometimes, who maybe they, they went to UCLA and stuff, they're like, at one point, USC was not what it is now. It was the rich kids. That's where the reputation was, you know. But the University it, of Spoiled Children. Yeah. yeah it's much, much better. But that was kind of a funny part of it. You did hear that a lot. Even a couple of the judges, when one judge <laughs> Can I stop you? Like, what is USC? Is that a one? Is that? But it had gained this, like, almost called status out there because it was like a lifestyle as much as it was a college. You know, Uh, interesting. That's actually a really interesting point. Yeah, you got into the whole like football and the the alumni thing. And I mean, you drive around there and you just see every license plate's like Trojan family, and it was open doors, particularly if you wanted to stay in LA and go into film or anything, entertainment or, you know, commercial real estate, it just had this cachet. And it's one high school, private school counselor said that parents would like crawl through glass to go to USC. It all kind of goes back though, to like how one of the things that stuck out to us was like, you know, yes, college is hard to get into, but it's not as hard as they thought. They were looking at sort of a narrow group of schools. All their resources and ability to just fly all around the country and look at places like they really had a narrow list. And the counselors at the high schools were frustrated. They're like, parents come in with like the same five schools that they want. And you're having to like say, hey, you know, there's these other schools where you might have a better shot or try them. It was a brand name. It was like everybody had to have the X. Right, the designer bag. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. Right. But I love in the book, too, that you point out that Stanvard was a joke in the sort of admissions community. It was like a lovely Twitter feed from Stanford University, actually. (laughs) So Stanford, for our listeners, is an amalgamation of Stanford and Harvard, obviously, Stanford. I really got a chuckle out of that. Sarah and I were discussing this earlier because I have a daughter who is not an honor roll student and has gotten into several schools. I'm hoping we'll go to University of Maine and has gotten into some other schools and one in Austin and one here. So, I mean, if you have a broad range and 
and are open about it. And when I'm when you look at these kids, they all would have gotten into many, many places if yeah. they had. But it's like, I want that Hermes Kelly bag that's only available in Hong Kong. You know, they wanted this right. designer experience. The difference between getting into college, getting into a good college, and getting into one of these half dozen schools that are considered the best. And of course, we talk in the book about this, kind of how college rankings has affected some of this, the growth of rankings. But this idea that there is a best school or that there are 10 top schools is just kind of crazy when you think about it, because the best school for one student is not going to be the best for somebody else. And if you can't get into the school on your own merits, is that a place that you should be going to? That's right. These kids had so many other advantages. So you can imagine if they went to just a fine, you know, school, not one of these top lists, but they were going to come home in the summer and get an internship at MGM through mom and dad (laughs) already have all these advantages. I mean, they had like little charities that they did and star studded people helping out. I mean, it was odd. I mean, but they had worked themselves a bit into a frenzy, which of course Rick Singer helped fuel. I remember one mom said that it seemed to her, her son was, he was good. He was a good student. He wasn't one of the top. And she felt like all those top students who used to go to Harvard and Yale, now they couldn't get in there. So they were going down a level to UCLA or these different places and pushing people like her son. She had in her mind that he was just, that the whole system was, you know, it was interesting. People had really worked themselves into a tizzy. It seems like it was a real amalgam between kind of keeping up with the Joneses, quote unquote, and fear. You yeah, know, that drove yeah. a lot of these parents. In the book, I think it was Jane Buckingham, I believe, yeah. right? Who, <laughs> you know, she's sitting just like, you know, at a sports game and the other mothers, have you gotten a college advisor? And she's like, oh, oh you my know, God, we I, already do that. We you're right. right. Yeah. <laughs> my son's 10. Do I really need to you know, get a college advisor but already? I think this speaks to so much. I mean, I used to live in Manhattan. And so I've seen parents have breakdowns when their three-year-olds didn't test into gifted programs. <laughs> like, I'm in New York City with a child who went through that process, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so you've seen it. I mean, and yeah. I've seen the testing into preschools. My daughter had to test into a preschool at three. I mean, it's like, so when you're starting that pressure, the thing that is so amazing and you make so clear in this book, and I think especially because you talk to some of the kids, is that it's really all about the parents. Yeah, what it's really not about the kids. Yeah. Like the, the kids didn't seem to really care that much. Right, right. If you find yourself caring so much more about where they go than they do, I don't know. There's Maybe it's just time to step back. Like I, there's a book out about, now about a hockey dad, and he was so mad because he thought his son wasn't getting proper playing time. And he kept asking his son, like, why are you more angry? Kids like, I'm having fun now. Like, I like hockey. And, right. and the dad's like, oh, why do I care? Jane Buckingham's a good example. It does go back with a lot of these parents. She was sympathetic in many ways. She had a lot of insecurity. But you could also see where she had just been a complete control freak throughout her kid's life. And now she's in a situation where she didn't have control. That's a really scary thing, I think, for the kids, but even to a greater extent for the parents, right? There's this idea that you are judged as a parent based on how well your kid fares through this process. Oh, Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You don't get to control the outcome. So, oh my gosh, I might be some sort of failure as a parent because my kid was waitlisted at this school, which was obviously not true, but in this very warped worldview and in these circles, it seems true that you're a lesser parent if you know, your kid doesn't get into it one does of seem true. And yeah. like, you want to post it on Facebook, like, hey, this is where my kids, I parented so well for 18 years. My right. kid got into. You want the bumper sticker. 
Right. And, and I'm, you know, envious when I see that. But I think a, a certain amount of parental narcissism is coming into play. Is, I, mean, I mean, many of the feelings were very universal, anxiety, all that. But then to actually go through with it. Yes, was, yeah, I think was, that's the point. It was like hubris. It was, I'm not going to get caught. I'm entitled to this in a lot of ways. It was just... Some people were nervous, but there was a lot of just like laughing along the way. That was shocking to me, the almost laughing along the way. I, I mean, Jane Buckingham wasn't really that sympathetic to me. I mean, she'd written parenting books. Yeah, right, right. I mean, and I think you're right. It crosses the line when you make them. I, me and Sarah were debating this. I think we all may be tempted, but it's like when you hand over the money. Yeah, right. The effort that, that went into it and... Just like, this wasn't just like walking into a, a store as one of the prosecutors pointed out in court one day, like I made a split decision. I did something really stupid. I shoplifted or I did this thing. You had to kind of be on board with this in a lot of cases for months because you had to lie to the guidance counselors and then maybe pose the kid and the photographs. So there was a lot of off ramps to be able to say like, wow, this isn't right. I shouldn't do this if I have to hide it. But you could see a lot of parents just really get into it. I don't know if they just convinced themselves. Like, you know, I do think probably they didn't think it was a federal crime. I don't think you're thinking it's a felony. You're just thinking it's not right. Obviously, you know, it's not right because you're hiding it from people. How people can kind of talk themselves into things is pretty interesting. I think that might be where the hubris comes in because they didn't think they were going to get caught. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you hear any of the transcripts or the conversations, it's obvious they know. I mean, I think it's funny when when Rick Singer's calling them back and saying he's being audited and how to like, you know, what to say about the money. And they're all like, oh, OK, you know, they're just all so on board with his lies. And it's, yeah. it's so clear. It was interesting. I think his charity kind of greased the wheels, too, because people could think like, I'm going to write this off for charity or maybe it's doing something good. I think some of them did kind of talk themselves into like that gave them entree to people, the charity angle. That yes. was kind of interesting. So when they turned around and wrote it off, that hurt them when they went into court. It was like, oh my gosh, how like brazen can you get? You now wrote committed this crime and you write it off. So there's one dad who the judge just she really took to him and she gave him probation because he just paid Rick Singer in cash that he took out in the bank in like structured payments and just like a crook gave him cash and she's like well at least he knew he wasn't lying to himself he was acting like a crook he knew it was <laughs> yeah that was laughable to me when somebody contributed and then wrote it off on their tax <laughs> oh, no, I, I know i know right like, this really bribe. <laughs> that's like i'm gonna use this uh, drug as a business expense yeah exactly <laughs> and so when the roundup happens in march of 2019 all of these people were blindsided, basically. They did not see this coming at all. Is that correct, Jennifer? I think so, yeah, because I've, I've talked with a lot of defense lawyers, and they said that where if you go in and you rob the store, you know the minute you leave that people are looking for you. But white-collar criminals often don't think they're going to get caught, and they tend to often be blindsided. And I think these parents weren't. I think for some of them, years and years had gone by kids were now in school, you know, it was two, three years later. Maybe some of them kind of had an idea, but most didn't. They certainly didn't know how big a web this was. That was just a crazy morning. I mean, if you can imagine, I mean, FBI really puts it on thick, like full force, which can be controversial. I mean, there's a lot of people, but from their point of view, they're like, if we're going to do this for one person, we got to do it for everybody. And they don't know people who have a lot to lose can be very unstable and have guns. And so they do go in like, but it's very early in the morning. They have to figure out, okay, who's going to be home? They know your routine. 
they like monitor your house and they figure out when to go. And they go very early in the morning, like before you've gotten up, you haven't had your coffee, anything, you're like in bed and they're banging on the door. They have to get back behind, you know, gates. Like a lot of these people had gates, live big houses. And right. they go one house to another and they kind of go all at the same time. It's like 5.30, 6 in the morning. And then they bring them to the, the Ryball Center in downtown LA, the federal court, the lockup. And they put all the men in one cell. <laughs> I love this part. Other, and we talked with some of the people who were in the cell and they said that, you know, you're sitting there. And then they kind of started to like recognize people, you know, in one cell you had like Lori Lachlan's husband, Massimo Giannoli. There was a, a USC coach and people kind of knew one another. Of course, like Jane Buckingham, Felicity Huffman had been friends, but they didn't know one another. Use Rick Singer, so they're in the same cell. And in the men's cell, they're sitting there on these hard benches and they're kind of talking like, what is this? And one of the um, coaches said, do you guys know Rick Singer? And everybody's just like, oh, my God. Wow. To people who, who haven't read the book, Rick Singer cooperated for a long time and recorded all these people saying extremely incriminating things. Yeah, exactly. After they get Rudy Meredith, they record Rick Singer without him knowing throughout that whole summer of 2018. And they get so much tape. It's like, it's almost comical how it's so open. He'd tell parents, he'd like walk them through his menu. Yes, we can do this. And they're like, well, you know, will I get caught? And one dad's like, am I going to do something that's going to end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal? Yes. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and you just think, oh my gosh, whoever's listening to that must be like, and then once they get Rake Singer, you get all this additional tape where they have them call back parents to bury themselves further. So they have so much tape on these people, which is why you saw a lot of people plead guilty. I mean, they tried to argue like, oh, he's a crook, he's a liar, but it's really hard when you, you're you also on tape. Yes. So this got adjudicated in Boston in the federal court, essentially. Yeah. Um, and you had a couple of pretty interesting uh, judges presiding. And so can you tell us a little bit about sort of Gorton and the processes that they Yes. Yes. So it goes to the court in Boston and you immediately have a lot of people plead guilty. And then so the fall of 19, you start to have this just this cascade of sentencings in court. And Judge Telwani has the first 13 or so. Uh, and so everybody's like, are they going to get prison? That's the big question. Nobody thought, the public was like, these people will never get prison. The prosecutors want like a year and a half. There was just a, not to get too deep in the weeds, but there was this big strange thing right before Felicity Hoffman. She went first where the judge relies on the probation department to say like how much money was lost here and then she then looks to see how much time to give someone so the probation comes back and almost blows the whole case up because they say you know nobody really lost any money the colleges in fact you know sometimes gain money because the parents paid a bribe to the soccer program and then the parents paid tuition they couldn't put a dollar amount on it the defense lawyers were just ecstatic. They're like, well, there's no financial loss. Okay, yes, what they did was bad, but if there's no real financial victim, they're probably not going to get prison. But the judges didn't look at that way at all. Judge Telwani 
is a judge that uh, you'd want if you were uh, accused of something. She's known for being very fair and, and sort of kind and really looks out for the defendant. And she's like more skeptical of the government. And she just, she gets, you know, irritated with them. She really is looking out for that defendant that they're right, that, you know, that they have a fair shake. You can tell she's a little more skeptical of, of just prosecutors. So it just really seemed like the defense lawyers had really hit the jackpot. Yeah, Judge Tawani, there's like no financial loss. Like this is going to be probation. But when we got into court that day for Felicity Huffman, the judge just, she'd really been channeling the public and she just gave this really heartfelt speech almost where she got to the heart of the case. She said, you already had so many advantages. Basically you're on third base. You have private schools, you have tutors, you have this, you have that. Think of all the parents who didn't. And when I'm reading all these letters from parents, because they write a letter to the judge saying, I did the best for my child and I had anxiety. She's like, imagine the anxiety of a family that doesn't have like half of your resources. Right. And she was just really upset. So she was really speaking for the families who had played by the rules, who didn't have near those kinds of advantages. And she was angry. Um, And she made clear that this to her was a, a prison case because she felt like, okay, I don't think you're going to do it again. I don't need to deter you, but you're in a world where there's enough people who think they can get away with this. And I need to send a message. So she sent Felicity Huffman to prison for two weeks, which doesn't sound like much, but she had paid the least. And so it really looked like she was going to get probation. And so the, after that, you saw this like panic in the hallway outside the defense lawyers were like, our clients are going to prison, you know, they're going, they're not getting probation. Right. Like I, from your book, Felicity Huffman had only paid like 15,000 for like a fake SAT or something. It was a fairly minimal, but still. Yeah. It was one of the, he kind of charged weird rates. Wasn't clear why he charged her so little, but like, unless he thought maybe getting her discount to get in, you know, get her on board or something. But there were people that paid a lot more and that had done like the testing scam and the side door athletic scam, multiple kids. So she wasn't one of the most egregious cases by any stretch. And, you know, she'd also like really carried herself kind of in a way that was contrite and she came forward early and all that. So it was clear that the judges, they didn't buy the idea that if you came in and said, I, look, I have anxieties about my kid. And they're like, you know, cry me a river like you and everyone else. Right. Like, right. Right. Well, How about that single mom trying to get her kid into college? Yeah, you exactly. Know, with, with, with student loans and, you know, yeah. with a yeah. tenth of your resources or less. Right. You know? Yeah. You saw the parents come in and, and try different things. I mean, a lot of people said they'd been manipulated by Rick Singer. That was a big one, which... I mean, maybe in the beginning, you know, the way the judges said it, like, you know, maybe in the beginning, you know, but at some point you got on board, you did this. And yes, he was the ringleader, but you worked with him. <laughs> and some some of the witness statements were actually quite comical. Oh. I can't remember which of the women, which of the mothers says this, but they like present a picture of her covered in oil. Like, oh, I'm really earthy kind of thing. And it was oh. actually like oil from fixing like the Cessna plane oh. that they owned. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Well, one of the things that struck me sitting on the court was like, I thought, did you focus group some of this stuff before? Because maybe you could, because there was a tone deafness throughout. They were coming in. And so you get, if you're a defendant, you get all your friends to write 
you know, people in your life to write letters to the court on your behalf, say what a good person you are and all that and what your good qualities are, which is great. I mean, it helps people. But some of these letters, the one you're talking about was uh, Marsha Abbott, Marsha Gregg. They were one of the married duos that were, were recharged. They'd hired Rick to do the testing scam for their daughter. There was a lot of, you know, talk about Duke, where Marsha had gone. He was a CEO and they had homes, uh, multiple homes, a big house in Aspen and New York. So you had letters from the doorman in New York. You had letters from the interior decorator saying, you know, they were kind enough to let me do their their apartment in Manhattan and <laughs> Aspen. And then you had the letter, you know, that Marsha's really earth. The, I saw her dust the Cessna with um, Jane Buckingham. You had letters from the private dance instructor who got to see Jane when she came weekly to help Jane's daughter with her private pirouette lessons or whatever at the house and things that just didn't make them seem. <laughs> if you're trying to come across as like just a regular struggling parent, you know, relatable, it didn't, it didn't work. Quite hit the mark. These aren't things us regular regular parents do. I remember with Greg Abbott, because when Marcia and Greg came in, oh, that was a really interesting one because their marriage was on the rocks and they were sort of like, she was living in Aspen and he was in the apartment in New York. And when they came in, you know, they sat at the table, but kind of on opposite sides, like those movies where people are at long tables, not talking, and they're just kind of sitting there. They each had their own lawyer. His lawyer was kind of like, in a way, kind of threw Marsha under the bus. He got up. He's like, you know, Greg got involved because he would have done anything to save his marriage. Whatever Marsha wanted, you know, he was going to do. The letters that they they submitted kind of ended up hurting them because in Greg's case, there were people saying, you know, Greg just did what any parent would have done. And Judge Kawani's like, see, that's who I need to send a message to. Right, right, right. I remember another another family, she came in and it was like, it was like the book of Joe, like all the things she'd gone through that she blamed. You know, like her sister had cancer. I mean, all these sad things, but that things that happen, you know, in, in lives when you had divorce, you had. But there was one guy who like really fell on his sword. Like, is it, I don't know if it was Kaplan. Who was the guy who was just like, yep, no, I knew what I was doing. I knew it was wrong. I think when you, when these kind of cases happen, you know, first of all, everybody's shocked, like it happened, but then it becomes, well, how do you handle it? And you can almost like redeem yourself a little by handling it well. And some of these parents did. I mean, I think Felicity Huffman handled it well. Gordon Kaplan, yeah, he's a big, big time lawyer in New York. And he came in, he had a very good lawyer and he handled it right. He just said, it was my ego. I got kind of um, blindsided by, by my ego and he was just honest. And that kind of thing was really interesting to see. There were a couple people that did that. And I think that's why, like, we, like, I, I know you just thinking about, like, Felicity Huffman. You know, I think that a lot of us can kind of sympathize with her because she was, everybody likes to forgiveness story or yeah. whatever. But yeah. I, Lori Laughlin really shocked me in her yeah. absolute defense of her position, despite mm. so much evidence. I think it's like really made her like one of the most hated women in Hollywood. I mean, what, what were your thoughts on that? They just they tried everything. You know, they had they really, really dug in and they just, you know, they they filed motion after motion, you know, they tried to have the case dismissed. They had tried to have the recordings suppressed. They accused the the government of misconduct. They just really, really dug in. She and her husband. Then when all that failed and they just denied and denied, denied, this was a donation that we had no idea, blah, blah. Then they just came out and, and admitted it. They pleaded guilty. And you're right. It just didn't help them because the evidence 
in that case was pretty compelling. I mean, you had a few things going on. You know, they, they were saying that this was a proper sort of thing that's commonly done. They thought this was all above board. You had the husband sort of browbeating the counselor at the high school mm. who raised questions about what's this about these girls doing crew? Like they don't do crew and, and the dad marches over, confronts him. Then more stuff came out where the government released more emails where they were trying to have the one daughter like instructing her how to cover it up. So you knew that it was wrong. And then the problem that all these parents came down to when they were trying to argue that somehow this was a donation, just like any other donation, is that you had this fraud element on the side of presenting your child as an athlete. (laughs) When you know your kid's an Instagram star, not a grower. (laughs) There is no donation program that requires you to present your kid no. <laughs> and a fraudulent athlete. Yeah, that doesn't exist in higher education. They couldn't go around that. That did not look too too well for them. I think that delay in time. So it'll be interesting to see like how you recover. It looks like Felicity Huffman's already getting back into acting. What will happen with Lori Loughlin? And she was interesting from the get-go because when she first came to court, I don't know if somebody advised her or if she was just what happened, if she was nervous or whatever, but So most people, when they first came to court, they just, you know, it's that no makeup kind of dress down and your head's down. You're very solemn. Contrite. Like she was at a red carpet event and in front of the court, there was a lot of people there. She was smiling. She was waving to people and it was sort of, sort of shocking. And then she marched to the court and she was like chipper and she was like shaking people's hand, you know, hi, I'm Lori. And then she went into the court And she actually went over to the prosecution table and introduced herself and shook everybody's hand. And people were just like, oh, my God, that is so embarrassing. What is she doing? I was just going to say as a sort of a personal note, too, I followed this pretty closely because I had actually known William H. Macy quite well. I'd worked on a movie with him quite a while ago, and he's one of the nicest people, kindest, nicest people, and that William H. Macy is married to Felicity Huffman. And so I just kept on like hoping, I was like kind of rooting for them to tell you the truth, just anyway. I think that was one thing that was kind of interesting was like, you had cases where it was one parent got in trouble, another parent didn't, and sometimes it was both, but somebody was more culpable. Because I think in every marriage, there's like sort of the alpha person. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so sometimes it was just the person who was like on the phone making the deals ended up getting caught or maybe somebody, one person cares more, you know, right. or more involved right. or more yeah. concerned or more implicit basically. Yeah. Usually yeah. one parent's more in charge of like the college part, I think in, in any household, it's usually yes. one parent's more. You know, it, but it brings me also to the kids too, because yeah. I would imagine a lot of these kids probably felt if they were not aware of what their parents were doing, you would feel the sense of betrayal. I mean, because essentially they, in trying to help their kids kind of ruin their kids in some ways, you know, I mean, that's an aspect where there must be a great sense of like, couldn't you have trusted me to do this on my own merits, mom and dad? Like what? Oh yeah. I mean, the kids were put into a really bad light because they just looked like, spoiled kids who'd gotten where they were, who couldn't have done it on their own. And like there was uh, one of them, Mateo Sloan, who I interviewed, he felt very betrayed because 
Mateo was, he was going to the Buckley School in Los Angeles. He was doing well. He was taking AP classes and he was, as he put it, you know, he was grinding. He would be up till like two in the morning doing his schoolwork. And he had a list of schools that he was interested in, a range of places, UC Santa Cruz. He loved the environment. He was going to find his way and do well. And he said that what struck him after, you know, his father pleaded guilty to paying Rick Singer to, you know, get his son into USC as a, a water polo player. Mateo didn't play water polo. And he did go to USC and he actually did well there. He said that, you know, he was like, why didn't you trust me to his dad? And then a couple things made him really mad. First of all, you know, why had he worked so hard in high school? If they were just going to cheat, what was that all about? And secondly, he remembered how his parents would always tell him they were proud of him. So now he thought back to all those times and he was like, well, was that a lie? Yeah. And what do you think, Jennifer, can we talk about the takeaway from all this, like what reforms have been made in the college admission process, like what is to prevent this? Yeah, what's changed? What's, cha- what's changed? Yeah, well, I think, you know, down at the at the high school level, some of the schools put limits on the outside counselors. A couple of even said like, you know, if you're going to work with an outside counselor, we don't know what's on your application. Like, we're not going to work with you if you're going to work with this outside counselor, like we need to be involved. So they're trying to have a little more control of the process so that their students aren't turning around and claiming that they're all these things they aren't and applying to the school. So there's been some efforts there. And then I think at the college level, there's been talk about, so that we know that coaches just had such power. They just would tell the admissions. They basically have their short list of like, Here's the kids I want. And then when it got to admissions, if you had the coach's blessing, they just made sure you met other basic qualifications and you were pretty much in. So now there's like extra eyes on that process at a lot of schools. And these coaches aren't supposed to have just their own little fiefdoms, but other people checking, is that an athlete? And kind of the, the process there. Melissa kind of talks like she's the real expert in this, that she thinks that the varsity blues scandal, you know, maybe has some effect, but the bigger thing that will change admissions is like the pandemic. And you're seeing a lot of changes in the SATs now, not being as big a deal. Rick Singer now, like so many schools aren't doing it. I mean, I don't know if he could even have that side of his business, what the incentive would be now. Like so many schools are getting rid of the SAT or kind of giving students a break. And the real irony is Singer could have been super successful, as you point out in your book, just having a legit business. He has this really appealing personality. He's blunt, he's confident, and he knew a ton about colleges. And he actually wasn't all about Ivy's or the very top schools. Like he would tell parents about some school they might, you know, never heard of. There's cases in the transcript where he's trying to talk parents into like, did you consider this school in Atlanta? And their parents are like, oh, that's that's redneck. And he's like, no, Atlanta's not redneck. You know, <laughs> he's trying to like get them to broaden their their view. I talked to some students that had used him like legitimately and they they liked him. He was a real like egomaniac too. He had a side that a lot of people were turned off by, but it is kind of a sad commentary. I know since then, since he got caught, you know, he's out on um, bail and he won't he won't be sentenced until after everyone goes. And now with the pandemic, that's going to be sometime next year. Most people will use that time to volunteer, to kind of build up something. So when you go in, you can say to the judge, look, I've been doing good stuff. And I know that he went to Chicago and was working with like lower income kids on their college to help them. Oh, good. Good. That's good amends. What kind of sentence do you think Rick Singer will do? 
I've heard that he is probably looking at three to five years. I feel like we haven't seen the end of him. I feel like when he gets out of prison, is this going to be like a book and there's going to be like a tour? (laughs) Who's going to play Rick Singer? I wonder. Yeah, no, I agree. He's one of these people who's just always working an angle. I mean, I've been surprised. He's like, some of the defense lawyers were kind of hoping that, you know, they're like, well, Rick Singer won't be able to keep himself out of trouble. He's going to do something else. He's one of those types, I just think. Maybe we'll get him here on Ivy League Murder. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? I could almost see him, like, you know, if you go, sometimes authors, they have conventions where they have in, like, a former crook or something to talk about what the mindset is. I could almost see Singer doing something like that. You know, he'd be an interesting case study. Definitely. Uh, You're talking to colleges, like, how did I, here's what you have to look for. But I think you're right. I mean, he's just an entrepreneur. He's going to figure out something and he'll probably do a book. And it's so interesting. And what happens with some of these parents now? I do think there's a legitimate, like how to figure out the algorithm of college admissions. There is a legitimate kind of, I'm just curious, I have a daughter who's 14 and I think it's sort of, I think a lot of parents just feel really baffled. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of parents just feel like sometimes it feels unfair. It sometimes feels like you can't figure it out because you see like, there's another book, Jeff Salingo, he's just written a book where he got to sit in with admissions offices and you come away from that like, oh my gosh, because you'd have somebody with just like great grades and extracurriculars and all this stuff, but then they're just would get bumped off for some weird reason. I mean, they like the kids that can pay full freight, but yet you've also got to be well-rounded or got to be good at something or got your essays. I think that in her case, it was like, well, her essays don't talk enough about what she did in the classroom, but you're like, well, look at her grade. So I think that parents look around and they get nervous. They see like the valedictorian not get into to like a really good school and they start to get really stressed. But again, you know, as we were talking about earlier, I mean, I think that really when you look at the numbers, like there are so, so many schools. There are. Yeah, there are. I mean, you can just look at all in New England. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so many great schools and that you can get into and you can do well. And not every kid, you know, I can speak personally, like not every kid is just like this like grinding machine that's like a, like ready to at the top of their game at 17 years old. I agree. I mean, some of them are just like, and I was like that. I was like a good student, but I had my sports and my friends, my school job. You know, you just end up, you're just like coming up. You're just this B plus, A minus, you know, clubs. And you're right. just like, and you go off to school. And my husband was the same way. His mom was trying to pay him to study. And we both went off to kind of like just fine schools. He went to Assumption in Worcester. And I went to Loyola. But then I'm sitting there and I'm like, I got educated by the Jesuits who were really great people. And at some point, one of them just said, you you need to go right for the school paper. And you, I learned to like confront authority and, and speak out. And you, you come into your own and there's just a gift to that. Some people just are a little bloom a little later. And if you're one of those kids who's just got it all together at 18, great, but I don't think most. <laughs> I agree with you. I don't think most do either. Lots of kids are meant to go to a, a state school or, a, you know, I was like you, you know, I was a good student who just had a lot of fun in college and wasn't grinding it out at 18. I respect people who are, but it wasn't my path. Everybody's different. I was a grinder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, grinder, a grinder at Harvard. But it's like, just look now, we have our president who went to the University of Delaware. His press secretary went to William and Mary. I mean, there's... There's lots of examples of people going on to do all kinds of 
great things. I mean, yeah, absolutely. On the Supreme Court, we have someone non-Ivy League now, which we yeah. didn't have before. Yeah. Not yeah. Harvard or Yale. No, everyone was Harvard or Yale. Everybody. So yeah, no, it's it's interesting. But um, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. This is so much up our alley because we, you know, we usually talk about crime, but we talk so much about how much people want to get into these schools. And it's just fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Your book, I mean, I just suggest everybody go out and get it. It's on Audible. It's on Amazon. It's, I mean, it's hard not to be outraged when you're listening. Well, I listened to it actually on Audible. But really, it's like so outrageous and very, very interesting. And the, fun. I mean, this yeah, is like is a fun, fun read. I, yeah, like, this is, is kind of like, like I, this read was just like really juicy and fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really have to say it. It is a really good, like dig in your teeth and have a great time read. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's great. And so, well, this was so fun to talk with you guys. Oh, you it was. This was great. This case is just, yes, this was yeah. awesome. Yeah, and like, when, uh, sort of keep unfolding. And if you, ever, if you ever want us to come back and talk about, you know, as some of these people start to get sentenced, we'll come oh, back. Oh, love to. Oh, yeah. but, and Jennifer, what's next for you, though? You know? Yeah, so I, you know, I've been deep into writing about coronavirus and social justice issues. I just spent, like, about six weeks sort of embedded with a police department wow. and did a big profile on the chief, what it's like to be a police chief right now. Spent time at Boston Medical Center, you know, in the ICU ward, like with the doctor. So I'm kind of, I get to glimpse a lot of different worlds. You get, you get to dip in and sometimes they can be just drastically different. Sure, great. <laughs> yeah. That, wow, that's fascinating. All right, Jennifer, thanks Thank a million. You again. Have a great weekend. Thanks Joe so much. Murder, murder.